This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters, joined weekly by my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, as I dive into a new case with you guys. I created this show to help give victims a voice back when they no longer have one. I like to tell a victim's story and have everyone remember who they were. And by doing so, we expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have a long case for you, and we're only getting into part one now. Next week, we will get into part two. It's so long because I read an incredible book on this case written by the victim's daughter. It's titled A Daughter's Journey and Story of Resilience. This book is written by Allison Morea Dukier, who is, again, the victim's daughter. She takes us through the case perfectly and then dives into her life and how hard it was as a secondary victim to this crime. She takes us through the fight she has fought for her mother. And she basically is the one who is helping me tell this story because I read her entire book and this podcast is based off that book. But that is a long book with so much more information in it. So I highly recommend if you want to know more about this case and more about Allison herself, go buy her book and dive right into it. With that, are you ready for today's case? So on October 18th, 1951, a hazel-eyed baby girl was born to Ray and Maxine Raffle. This was their first child, and they named her Lonine Ray Raffle. Her nickname was Lonnie. This little babe was an adorable little blondie, and her parents adored her. She came into this world about four years after Ray and Maxine had married, and just months before Lonnie turned six years old, her parents brought home a baby, baby sister named Glenelyn, who everyone would call Glennie. And I actually kind of love this name. It's like really unique. I guess it's because Maxine was prepared for a little boy because she wanted to have a boy both times she had given birth. So she didn't have a girl's name picked out and they decided to name her after Ray's sister and her husband, Glenn and Helen. So then with that, they got Glenelyn. I was like, that's kind of cute. At first, I thought you said Glennie. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cute. Well, Glennie is her nickname. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's like what people call her, but her full name's Glenelyn, and this is Lonnie's sister. Anyway, the girls would get another sister just a little over seven years after Glennie is brought home. The third baby was named Mia. Now, although there was this pretty large age gap between the three Raffle sisters, they were very tight-knit and close to each other. This bond formed, sadly, due to the struggles their parents had, Ray and Maxine didn't get along great. They were often fighting. It was sort of a toxic environment for the girls to be raised in. And because of this, the girls turned to each other for support. 
Now, back to the oldest child, Lonnie. In the first year that she was born, Maxine noticed that something seemed wrong with her daughter's hearing. Lonnie didn't startle at noises and she wouldn't turn her head towards sound. And at first, doctors told her that her baby was healthy and doing fine, but Maxine fought for her daughter, knowing in her gut that something was off. At 18 months old, it is determined that Lonnie was born deaf. So while in utero, her ears didn't develop correctly. And yeah, so as first-time parents, I'm sure Ray and Maxine were overwhelmed with this news, but it seems that they were able to help her live a fulfilling and resilient life. Lonnie had a bubbly personality, and as cliche as it is to say in a missing or murdered person's case, she truly did light up any room that she came into with her big smile. So Lonnie would end up going to Woodrow Wilson High School, located in Youngstown, Ohio. And in this school, there was a class for students who were living with hearing loss. They were pretty well included in school functions and treated just like every other hearing kid attending the school, except for this one instance where the deaf kids were excluded. So a senior trip had been planned and everyone was set to go to a concert. But because people assumed the kids with hearing loss wouldn't enjoy it, they were not invited. So did she have any hearing aids? Like, did she sign? She did. She did have hearing aids and like she did sign and all of that and read lips and. Okay. Yeah. So she like had hearing aids since she was like two years old. Okay. And I guess when deaf people, like deaf people can still enjoy concerts as they feel the sound through the vibrations is what I read. And so I'm sure it's a completely different experience than someone who can hear experiences at a concert. But Lonnie wasn't cool with being excluded from the event. Well, yeah. It's like, just just invite them. And if they want to go, cool. If they don't, then they don't. You might as well just let them go. And if they feel like they're not going to enjoy it, then they can choose not to go. Right. So she asks the school if her class could also join the students on the trip, but she was told no. She refused to take this no for an answer and instead organized the other kids in her class and put together a fundraiser to raise the money so that they could fund their own trip to the concert. These students held a car wash and they did it. They raised the money to fund their own trip. That's awesome. Yeah, this is like, that was her, one of her... Her daughter's favorite stories of her mom. That she wanted to go and she made it happen. Yeah. Like even though she was excluded and like she was in this class of deaf kids, like she held this fundraiser and put it all together and made sure that they were all able to go. So through her high school years, Lonnie dated a man named Billy Schmidt. He was also deaf and Lonnie was in love with Billy. They attended their senior prom together and spent a lot of time with one another. So much so that Lonnie dreamed of their future and what it would look like to marry Billy and have children with him. However, as time went on in their relationship, Billy's Billy's feelings changed and he ultimately broke up with Lonnie, leaving her heart completely shattered. Oh, high school sweethearts. It's hard with your first heartbreak. (laughs) (laughs) High school dating is hard and it'd be even harder like with that hearing loss, I think. 
you know, like you'd be more, what's the word, like limited because you'd need to find people who would be willing to do sign language or learn it or already know it or, you know, and then he was also deaf. So it made it easy for them to connect. Okay. But ultimately they break up. So by the time she was in her early 20s, she was ready for a new relationship when she met Clinton Randall Rogers. Everyone called him Bud. Lonnie met Bud after joining the Erie Silent Club in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this was a deaf club established in 1942. People who joined this club are usually faithful members for life. Some of the families were even members generation after generation. Apparently, the deaf community is a close-knit one. They stick together and at a club where they could meet others who communicated mostly through sign language and lip reading, the members found community here. I love that. Yeah. That's so they really, all got really close here. That's cool to just have a group that you feel like you belong and everything's great and normal. and Right. It's like a place to be. So this is their safe place when they might not feel like they really fit into the world around them, but they don't see it as a negative thing. It's okay that they didn't fit in with everyone else. Their hearing impairment to them is not a disability, but a unique quality that they see as a gift. So being a part of this community is like having an exclusive membership. So here, Lonnie and Bud's relationship blossomed. Lonnie was attracted to Bud's dark features. He was tall while Lonnie stood at five foot six inches and she loved being cradled by his large structure. She also found Bud funny and she was always laughing by his side in these first days of their relationship. And Lonnie could tell that Bud was enamored with who she was. He loved her and Lonnie appreciated this validation. The relationship moved along quickly, a little too quickly for some of those close to the couple. Maxine, Lonnie's mother, really never got a good taste in her mouth about Bud. She didn't like him. And while Lonnie's dad, Ray, didn't love Bud, he did try to keep the peace and not say much to Lonnie about the relationship, besides that he personally thought she could do better. So the pushback of her parents, of course, just pulled Lonnie further into Bud. She didn't want to hear her parents talk about their disapproval. And while she defended him, their relationship became more and more serious. Maxine specifically sensed an anger that she couldn't trust inside Bud. And she was extremely worried for Lonnie while in this relationship. So it came as a punch to the gut when Lonnie announced she was going to marry Bud Rogers. Mm. I, this made me think of a TikTok that I saw the other day. It was like, and I sent it to Cassie. Actually, I should look it up because <clears throat> it was had something to do with like, your mom knows, like now you're mature once you realize that your mom knows everything about boys. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And like clothes or something, you know. I know. And it's so hard. I feel like as a parent, it would be hard to see your kid with someone you don't like. But then if you push too hard, they just want to date them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's what it was. Maturing is realizing your mom is always right about two things, friends and boys. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. But when you're a teen or you're a young adult, you do not want to think that they're right. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know, <sighs> but they do have wisdom. They are right. Listen to your mothers. <laughs> so where did Clinton Randall Rogers, a.k.a. Bud, come from? Unlike Lonnie, Bud did not stay near his family during his high school education. Instead, his family sent him to a boarding school, the Western Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, WPSD. And at this time, Bud's family lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, while the boarding school was in Pittsburgh, about two hours away. So he spent even most of his weekends there, like the whole school week, and then most weekends, he was away from his family. This is all throughout high school? Yeah, it's a specific school for the deaf. And so his parents sent him out there. And he was the youngest uh, child of four. His parents first had Frank, then Edna, then Alora, and then came Bud. And he was extremely close with his closest sister in age, Alora, who people would call Laura. Now, although Bud was deaf, most of his family did not end up learning sign language. So this likely felt pretty isolating as a child, like because he couldn't communicate with them great. You know? Oh, I know. That would be sad if your family didn't learn it. Yeah. So, like, they couldn't communicate with him great. Then he's living out at this boarding house or this boarding school. And so, growing up, Bud was known as the Joker. He would do dangerous stunts just to get a kick out of his friends. He would push limits and boundaries. And he always made sure he was the center of attention, which probably came from that isolating feeling. Yeah, he wanted to be noticed. Yeah. Now, unlike Lonnie, Bud was not born deaf. He did have regular hearing up until he was three years old. At this age, his life changed when he was sitting between his parents in the front seat of their car. During this drive, his family was in a car crash, and little Bud slid forward and fell to the floor just under the driver's side seat. At the same time, Bud's dad goes to slam the brakes hard with his foot, but he doesn't realize he's not slamming the brakes. It's actually Bud's head under the pressure of his foot. And this left irreversible damage to Bud's hearing. Oh my gosh. So did they get in a car wreck? Yeah, they got in a car wreck. He fell to the floor and then his dad's trying to slam on the brakes, but he's really like slamming on Bud's head. Oh. That sounds terrible. Yeah. And so Bud could hear very, very minimally. He was termed hard of hearing and was considered basically deaf. And I also have to wonder if he suffered some sort of brain injury in this accident. Like if your head is stomped on so hard that your hearing is lost, I would think there could definitely be like a TBI. Yeah. And there is is some sort of connection sometimes where yeah people with bad behavior have had even you know minimal brain trauma before so you just wonder if like it could have affected his behavior at all I know I wonder so what year was this in I am not sure what year he was in the car crash but he was three at the time but was this in like the 70s 80s 90s this would have been in like this like 50s or 60s because they are married um in 1972 his parents 
Uh, no. Oh, Bud, Bud and, and Lonnie. Okay. So it was yeah. in the six. Oh, yeah. They probably, like nowadays, if you did that and got anything, they'd look at like at an MRI of your brain, but they probably didn't back then. Yeah. Like it was too long ago to like, yeah, for them to have really been looking into those things. I would assume, but I mean, I'm no expert. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just thought. <laughs> That seems like pretty traumatic head trauma to lose your hearing from being stomped on so hard. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So these are the backgrounds of Bud Rogers and Lonnie Raffle. And we know that once they hit it off at the Silent Club in Erie, Pennsylvania, it was over from there. Their relationship progressed rapidly and they married in Little Corners, Pennsylvania, regardless of the disapproval of Lonnie's parents. It was Saturday, October 21st, 1972, when they married. And once they were married, they rented an upstairs apartment in a duplex located in the town they were married, Little Corners. Lonnie's grandparents actually owned this home, and they lived in their own home just kitty corner from the duplex. At this time, Bud and Lonnie's families only lived about 30 minutes away from one another, so they were pretty close in proximity to both families, although Bud didn't love the arrangement because he wanted to live closer to his family a half hour away, but they're living oh, right next gosh. to Lonnie's family. I know. I'm like, it's 30 minutes. Well, I'm, I wonder it's- why they didn't like him. Like, I, I wonder what, like, characteristics they saw. I know. Like... Like, did he treat her mean? They just vibed him wrong. Maxine just said she, like, sensed an anger in him that was, like, off. Like, I don't know if they just had a gut feeling. Yeah. Or what? Because they disapproved of him before they got married. And then after they get married, that disapproval just intensifies. Yeah, because it's like, what are the red flags that you're seeing? Yeah. Which we'll definitely get into some. That you'll that are just very apparent once they're already married. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lonnie loved living where they lived, right by her family, because her grandparents are literally a hundred yards away. Like they're right across the street, and then her sisters were just ten miles down the road. So through their marriage, Lonnie realized that Bud had a temper. She was the opposite. A pattern started of Bud throwing a fit, raging out, and then apologizing. Each time, Lonnie would accept the apology and make excuses for why he treated her this way. Now, a good quality about Bud was that he was said to have enjoyed helping others. So he joined the volunteer fire department where Lonnie's grandpa had also served. His regular job at this time was working in a machine shop foundry, and he would also do some odd jobs on the side. Lonnie worked in a hotel cleaning rooms, So while they had a two-income household, they still weren't getting into a great place financially because Bud was not great with their money, which he would often spend on himself instead of paying their bills. So Bud decides to break into a car just about a year into their marriage. Maybe he was looking for money or valuable items, but he's caught by the police and is arrested in February of 1973. He goes to court and he is ordered to pay restitution to the person whose car it was on top of court costs. He was also put on probation and ordered to attend ARD, Accelerated Rehabilitative Disposition. 
And Lonnie was mortified at what Bud had done. It was embarrassing. It was shameful. She felt betrayed. However, the couple still forged on together, Lonnie hoping that the marriage would improve with time. And for about a year, the next year, Lonnie and Bud actively tried getting pregnant. They both wanted a child. And in 1975, their dream came true when they gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Allison Morea Rogers. And this daughter is who wrote the book that I read on this case. So Lonnie took time off of work after Allison was born so she could spend those precious first days with her newborn. Bud continued working at the foundry, Teledyne Pen Union. And on top of his day job, Bud also took on a job at a local local tavern where Lonnie's dad was a regular. Ray had put in a good word for Bud and helped him to get his this extra job to support his family. And Bud was a hard worker. So this place was called Dee's Tavern and Bud would clean it a few times a week. However, problems started coming up for the owner as they realized that money seemed to come up missing after Bud had been working. Although he claimed that he didn't take the money, he was in fact pulling money from the register during his shifts. The first few times he took under $100, which back in 1977 was more money than $100 is today. But then one day, Bud takes $700 from his employer. Oh! Now, he knew this was too much to just brush off, so Bud decided to stage the scene. He broke the glass door at the entrance of the tavern, and he claimed to his boss that he was robbed by two masked men at gunpoint. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) And he says that they even shot at him, which left a bullet hole in his baseball hat. So investigators, they come to the scene, but they find that the glass door was broken from the inside. And they also found it strange that this bullet went in the front of Bud's baseball cap and out the back. Yet there was no hole in Bud's head, not even a graze of a bullet. So Bud was arrested. He was able to post bail and he awaits his trial at home. Oh, my God. Yeah, you can tell, like, his criminal behavior is escalating. Like, he breaks into a car. Then he's, like, stealing a little bit of money. Then he steals a lot of money and, like, stages this whole scene. Yeah. (laughs) But it's so obvious. Like, so he shot a hole through his hat and says they shot at him. But it's like, so did you take your hat off? And, like, they just shot right at the right time. (laughs) it's just not a good story no no so he's not a very good liar no and while he's out on bail he actually ends up being arrested for another burglary that took place before this whole mess apparently Lonnie and Bud's neighbor had introduced Bud to the volunteer who the one who had introduced Bud to the volunteer fire department Uh, Bud admitted that he broke into this neighbor's garage and stole $270 worth of tools. So now he is facing two charges of burglary and he pleads guilty to both. He was sentenced to six months to two years in prison. 
However, the judge did have empathy for Bud's wife and child, and since Bud was the sole provider, he granted Bud work release so he could work during the day, but then he would spend each evening slash night at the prison. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. His wife probably wanted to kill him. Right. So the icing on top of the cake is that while all of this is going on with Bud, Lonnie found out she was pregnant with their second child. This had to have been so stressful on her to know she was having another baby with this man who can't quite pull it together for the family. The glimmer Mm -hmm. of light in all of this, though, was that Lonnie's little sister, Glennie, also found out she was pregnant with their first child. So they were celebrating these pregnancies together. Now, around this time, Lonnie and Glennie had lost their baby sister, who was only 12 years old at the time. Mia had appendicitis that ruptured and spread infection throughout her abdomen, called peritonitis, And she was on antibiotic medication through an IV after an emergency surgery. And I guess Mia seemed to be doing good. In the hospital, Mia loved laying her head on her pregnant sister's bellies. She told Glennie that she knew their baby would be a boy and that she really loved the name Jason. So although Mia did seem to be recovering at first, things soon went south. Her belly started swelling, she had a fever, and she couldn't eat. And at one point, while Lonnie was helping Mia back to her hospital bed, Mia wouldn't let go of her hand and told her that she was scared she was going to die. Aww. Apparently, the nurses were trying to summon a surgeon, and they were upset because the surgeon was not concerned about Mia. Her family was getting anxious, and they discussed moving her to a hospital in Pittsburgh. But before they could, Mia went into shock. Now the surgeon came and prepped for emergency surgery. Maxine's dad, Mia's grandpa, overheard a doctor say to a nurse, that child's not going to make it. Why'd you wait so long? So shortly after the emergency surgery, Mia did pass away. Ray and Maxine were devastated. They didn't expect it, and to lose a child so suddenly was traumatizing. Yeah, that's that's gotta be a hard time for Lonnie. She's her husband's in jail, and well, partly. Yeah, and she's pregnant. Right, like your husband's getting in all these all this trouble for burglaries. You and your sister are pregnant. Your sister, your other little sister just dies. Like this would have been a lot going on. Yes. Now, on June 25th, 1977, Glennie's water broke and her baby comes. It was a boy just like Mia had predicted and she, of course, named him Jason. Now, during Glennie's labor, all of her family was there, including Lonnie Lonnie wasn't doing good in her marriage, so Bud also came to the hospital. I think this was before he was sentenced, but he came on his own, like he was not invited by Lonnie. So the Raffo family goes to the hospital cafeteria to eat lunch, and Bud sneaks into Glennie's delivery room. He confesses to her that he did commit the robberies, and he begged Glennie to talk Lonnie into forgiving him. I'm like, I'd be so pissed if you were there while I'm trying to give birth to my baby. Yeah. <laughs> like, actually, get out of this room. Oh, yeah. 
Don't need you. I'm sure you couldn't sneak into a hospital room of a laboring mother nowadays, but apparently you could then. Yeah. (laughs) So Glennie and her husband, David, who's the father of the baby, they ultimately split up after Glennie found her husband in bed with another man when their baby was only three months old. He was cheating on her. Oh, wait, I'm confused. So... Glennie got pregnant with a different man? Um, Glennie is Lonnie's sister. Oh, 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 Glennie. Okay. Yeah. Not Lonnie. Yes. So there's three sisters, Lonnie, Glennie, Mia. Yes. Mia passed away. Lonnie and Glennie are pregnant at the same time. Okay. So Glennie has her baby. Three months later, she finds her husband, David, in in bed with another man he was cheating on her, so she went right over to her sister's sister Lonnie's house, who offered her a shoulder to cry on, but also said, I told you so. I guess Lonnie had never thought David was the right match for her sister Glennie, and kind of just like Glennie didn't think Bud was the right match for Lonnie. This family during this time is going through it. Now, during Bud's prison stint, Lonnie welcomes her second baby. It's a son named Aaron Randall Rogers, and he was born on October 14, 1978. Her family rallies around her since her husband cannot be a support from jail. The baby is just a few months old when Bud is released from jail, but Lonnie was over it at this point. She did not want Bud to come home. She was embarrassed by his now third burglary attempt that he was caught for. He couldn't take care of their family like she needed him to, and she told him that her first priority was to protect her children. He wasn't welcome home anymore. So he went to stay with his parents about 30 minutes away from the duplex that Lonnie and the kids lived in. Now, the winter weather there in Erie, Pennsylvania can be extreme. So as Christmas came, Lonnie got a soft spot for Bud. She felt like because of the commute and the winter weather, Bud was missing out on time with his kids. She tells Bud that he can come back to the apartment only through the holidays. Lonnie hoped deep down that maybe Bud would make a change for the better and that he would finally grow up. But that didn't happen. He overextended his stay. Months passed. It was no longer the holidays, but he was still there. He was also controlling, and the two of them were fighting again on a regular basis. Lonnie informed Bud that it was time for him to leave, but he refused. Now that he was back at the home, he would not go again without a fight. So Lonnie knew she needed to plan to leave Bud. She started with getting a job again, cleaning hotel rooms, And it was here that she met a friend who became very important to her. This was a man named Arthur. He was contracted by the hotel to work on their electrical needs. The two of them would have lunch together or get a drink after work. They started spending a lot of time together. Arthur was a positive and fun energy to be around. And this is who really gave Lonnie the courage to stand up to Bud and believe that she deserved much better than he could give her. Now, I don't know if this friendship included any romantic feelings. They were close, but Arthur was married and he made it clear he would not be leaving his wife and children. 
Although he did make it clear that he also wasn't happy in his marriage. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but Lonnie and Arthur found comfort in each other, which from Arthur's side isn't great since he was married and he just claimed to like he had just fallen out of love with his wife. And it's like, okay, well, then you should leave her. But I do understand Lonnie falling into this close friendship because she didn't have support from her husband. He was controlling. He was angry. She needed someone. And technically, she had been trying to get him to leave for months. She only told him he could come back for the holidays. Like, they weren't supposed to be together, you know? Yeah. So Lonnie and Arthur, they didn't hide their friendship. They would have lunch and drinks out in public. But someone ends up taking a picture of Arthur and Lonnie together and they send it to Bud. Lonnie explained that Arthur was just a good friend, but Bud was furious. Following this, Bud became even more controlling. I think he could feel his grip on Lonnie loosening. Now, keep in mind, Lonnie only let Bud come for the holidays. Like I just said, she didn't want to be back together with him. She asked him to leave, but he kept insisting he stay. So I don't feel like she owed him anything at this point. He knew she didn't want him there. And Lonnie figured by this point, she would have to be the one to leave, to move out of the house and never look back. It was Tuesday, January 6, 1981, that Lonnie decided to put her plans into motion. After work, she stopped at her parents' house and vented to them about the relationship and all its woes. Ray gave her money to help her pay some bills and be able to get into a new situation. He was supportive of his daughter and vowed to do whatever he needed to help her with the transition. They hugged as she went to leave, and Ray told her, you're going to be okay. It's so weird to me when, like, as a couple, like, one of the spouses refuses to move out. I know. (laughs) Because it's like, why do you want to force somebody to be with you if they don't like you? Yeah, like, and, like, if you're not contributing really to the household, like, just move out. Yeah, so that, that's like so something that I would never continue want. to take care of her children. <laughs> yeah. If someone told me they really don't like me, they're like, I really want you to leave. I just wouldn't just force my presence. It'd be like, okay, I'll go be with someone who wants to be with me. I know. That's how I feel. And I'm like baffled about it because I know somebody that's like kind of in the same situation. And like, oh. she really doesn't want to be married, but like, there's nothing she can do because her spouse won't leave it's just like weird and controlling to me like they're I know I'm like well what do you do like how do you like can you just force him to leave like do you does your attorney have to force him or and then it's like well she's like well if I leave though I'm the one that's like really paying like my name's on the house and I'm the one paying the bill for it So do I leave and buy another place and pay for that and still have to pay for my house so that it doesn't go into bankruptcy? And I was like, that is bizarre. I know. It's crazy. It's so hard. Like, just leave. If someone asks you to leave, just go. (laughs) Do your life separate. (laughs) But people are controlling. I think they also like, especially when they're kind of mooching, you know, like, well, yeah, gonna stay. 
they're going to not go and do what it takes to get their own place. And then, you know, the person who wants to not be married anymore, they have to end up being the one who leaves. And sadly, if the person is being really controlling and it's like dangerous, then when you leave is the most dangerous time. Yeah. So it's kind of scary to also be the one to like pack up your bags and try to go. Yep. So Lonnie, she drives off from her dad's house and she's ready to officially end things with Bud for good. At this time, their children are young. Allison is about five years old and Aaron is about three years old. When Lonnie returns home that night, the family eats dinner together, Bud plays with the kids a bit, and then they were put to bed. And remember, the family lives in an upstairs apartment of a duplex, so there is another family who lives below them. Late that night, their neighbors heard banging and arguing coming from upstairs. Lonnie and Bud are both deaf, so they weren't screaming at each other, but Allison explained that when her parents fought, there would be banging sounds from things like hitting the table or hitting the wall or stomping and maybe like guttural type screams, but no words exchanged. So on this night that Lonnie and Bud are fighting, there is also a blizzard predicted. Everyone was informed that they should try and stay inside and not drive through the night of January 6th and the, into the morning of January 7th. So the kids, Allison and Aaron, they were normally taken by Lonnie to the babysitters around 8 a.m. since both her and Bud worked. However, between 3 and 4 a.m., Bud dresses the kids and takes them to the babysitter. He has to bang on the door because it's the middle of the night. So he's trying to wake up the babysitter and she's hard of hearing. And then he is literally like, hey, I know it's like three in the morning, but I need to drop my kids off to you because I have to go to work. But Lonnie's gone. Oh, and the babysitter is like, it's 3 a.m. So Bud claims that she ran off with another man. And that he had woken up a little after midnight to find her missing from the bed. He claimed he needed to drop the kids off now because before he goes to work, he's going out looking for Lonnie. So the babysitter was named Sandy and she's like, excuse me, she doesn't buy this story for one second. What in the world was he even talking about? Sandy knew Lonnie wasn't the kind of woman who would abandon her kids for another man. She also knew that the marriage was on the rocks. Sandy was also hearing impaired, so in order to communicate with someone on the phone, she had to own this TTY, which was a text telephone. This TTY had to be available to both parties trying to communicate this way, so Sandy uses her TTY to contact her daughter, who also has one, and her daughter can hear, but has one of these phones so she can com communicate with her mom. And Sandy asks her daughter to call Lonnie's parents because she was worried. Bud comes back to Sandy's house at 7 a.m. And he's like, well, I can't find Lonnie anywhere, so I'm going to work. However, Bud doesn't make it to work until 9 a.m., so two hours even though it's only a 12-minute drive that typically took him about 20 minutes. The weather was bad, but Bud drove a two-wheel, uh, a four-wheel drive Ford Bronco, 
So he was probably okay on the roads, but maximum it shouldn't have taken him more than 40 minutes or so to get to work, not two whole hours. Okay. So when Lonnie's parents heard from Sandy's daughter, the feeling in their gut was that something awful had occurred. They knew Lonnie was trying to leave Bud that night. Ray calls Lonnie's grandpa, who lives kitty corner from her, just 100 feet away, and they agree to meet up and go over to the duplex together. No one was home, so they broke into the apartment to take a look. Nothing was out of place. Nothing was broken. It was clean inside the home, so they leave. After work, Bud picks up Allison and Aaron. Sandy offers to keep them so that Bud can continue searching for Lonnie, but he doesn't like that idea. He takes the kids home, and very shortly after arriving, Lonnie's dad Ray and Grandpa London were at his store. They banged and banged, but Bud pretended not to notice. Bud and Lonnie's home had a doorbell that lit up inside when someone pushed it. They also had a German shepherd trained to alert when someone was at the door. And then his kids, who could also hear, they were there and likely alerted him. But regardless of him claiming to not hear the door and not answering, Ray and London just bust their way inside. Like, they're like, fine, we'll just come in. So Allison was five, almost six years old, and she has a faint memory of this night when her grandpa and great-grandpa flew inside. She remembers the three of them in a heated battle. Bud was yelling that Lonnie ran off with another man and that he had the pictures to prove it because she was cheating on him. Ray screamed at him that it wasn't true, calling Bud a liar, asking where his daughter is, and telling Bud that he knew Lonnie wanted to leave her husband, not her children. Bud threatened to call the police on them for breaking into the house, but Ray and London left, telling them, telling Bud that they were actually going to call the police themselves. So Ray calls the Maidville State Police Department around 6 p.m. on January 7, 1981. The department tried to tell him he needed to wait 24 hours for an investigation to start, but he refused to allow them not to come look for Lonnie now. He told them he would take matters into his own hands if they didn't come and do something to search for Lonnie. He said he would he would beat it out of Bud himself. So the police are like, <laughs> okay, don't do that. We will come. <laughs> so I guess that works. Yeah, don't do anything <laughs> stupid. Um, we will come investigate. Yeah, so if you're a family that's struggling to get the police, you know, <laughs> involved early enough, you might just want to say like, hey, I'm actually going to take it into my own hands if you don't help me out. I know. I was going to say, say, hey, I'm going to kill this guy, but don't do that because they might be able to get you. <laughs> yeah, don't, act, don't actually kill him, but. Maybe make the threat. <laughs> well, don't threaten either. I think they can get you on the threat. Yeah, probably. Just threaten you'll beat him up like uh, Ray did. So anyway, they come. They start searching. And by the morning of January 8th, everyone is out searching for Lonnie. The fire department, the police, friends, family, neighbors. But Bud didn't join any of the searches. He took many drives on his own, claiming that he was searching on his own. Inside Bud and Lonnie's apartment, it was clear to her family that she didn't leave that house willingly because she left behind her hearing aid. 
and Lonnie never went anywhere without her hearing aid. It was a part of her. She had worn it since she was two years old. Her family said even if it like the batteries had died, she would still be wearing it. Like she always wore it except mm. when she slept. So yeah, that's a that's a big clue. Yeah, not a good sign. So also missing from the apartment was a pink king-sized blanket that Lonnie had gotten at a Christmas work exchange a few years prior. Glennie was the one to notice the blanket was gone. Lonnie's friend Arthur was contacted by police during the investigation. He was married and this put him in a weird situation. So he didn't participate in the searches because he didn't want the attention on him or on his marriage. But he did answer all questions from police and tried to help outside of the limelight. Eventually, he was ruled out as a suspect. And if Lonnie was running off with any man, it probably would have been him. But he's still here. So no one is believing that she just left on her own free will. Yeah, that's just uh, Bud's lie. Yeah, the man she's close with is not gone. So what other man are you claiming she <laughs> ran off with and left her children behind? Yeah, and her hearing aid. Yeah, exactly. So Allison, at just five years old, was also talked to at the police station to see if she knew any information. It didn't go great. Allison was scared. So the police suggest trying to hypnotize her. Glennie reluctantly let them try, but Allison wasn't cooperating. And with that, the interview process of Allison was over. At this time, Glennie was living in Toledo, Ohio, and this was about three hours away. So she stayed for a while there in Pennsylvania to help take care of Allison and Aaron, but she also had to go home to her own son. She offered to bring the kids back with her, telling Bud that this was so he could focus on finding Lonnie. Bud did allow Glennie to take them. She was preparing to register them for school and set up daycare, However, only a few days in, Bud shows up unannounced and angry. He takes his kids back, although she begged for him to let them stay, promising that she would provide everything for them. But he refused. So, Bud came to this conclusion after talking to his sister, Laura, who told him Glennie was probably trying to steal the kids and intended on fighting to keep them. Laura helped Bud get a lawyer and told him not to talk to anyone except for her and the lawyer. From here, he didn't help with any part of the investigation ever. So, after picking up his kids from Glennie's house, he drove them straight to his sister's house. Allison and Aaron hadn't spent much time with Laura, but Bud dropped off the kids and he left. Allison remembers screaming and begging her father not to leave them. I mean, like he left like for good, like he dropped them off to live there. Oh, within, okay. Yeah. And was trying to bounce town. He wasn't trying to leave town, but like, I guess he just didn't think he could take care of them right then with everything going on. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, was he dropping them off to, and to and skip like town? Running? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. he does. He sticks around, but he just drops them off and leaves. And 
like these kids within days, their mom goes missing and then they're living at their aunt's house and their dad's gone. So it's just like completely traumatic. Oh, yeah. That'd be really hard. Yeah. Their life is uprooted. Their mom vanishes. They lose their dad and they're staying with an aunt they barely know. Instead of their mom's sister, who they were just with and had spent a lot of time with in their early lives. I know. I was going to say, why didn't they go there? But I guess Bud probably didn't dare. Well, they did go there and then he came and picked them up and then dropped them off at his own sister's house. Yeah, I wish. Yeah, too bad he didn't just leave them. I know. So Laura's husband, Jerry, had held Allison back as her dad left and then carried her crying little self upstairs to one of the bedrooms, laid her down on the bunk bed and closed the door behind him. Soon after, he brought Aaron to the bedroom and laid him down in the other bed. Allison remembers crying herself to sleep that night. And during all of this, searches for Lonnie continued, and they were extensive, but nothing was found. While the kids were at Laura's house, Bud would visit about once a month and take the kids to do something special. They craved those short visits that always came to an abrupt end when Bud would drop them off back at their aunt's and drive away. Finally, the summer before Allison started second grade, Bud came to pick them up more permanently. Allison was eight years old. Aaron would have been around six years old. And Bud surprised them with the information that he had an apartment waiting for them. So they made the move to Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, where Bud was working. He still worked for the Teledyne Penn Union. The kids were so excited to be back with their dad. Hopefully it would provide a sense of normalcy after their worlds were completely shattered. But they didn't love meeting their dad's new girlfriend, Laura Kennedy. She was also hearing impaired, and the couple fought a lot in front of the children. This included angry, guttural sounds, the sounds of smacking hands, stomping on the floor, or furniture. And Laura sort of confided in Allison, which was obviously so inappropriate because Allison is eight years old. And Laura would tell Allison that Bud was so mean to her and that he hit her and always hurt her. She also tells Allison that she knows Bud is responsible for what happened to her mother. Holy cow. (laughs) At eight years old, this was a lot for Allison to take in. She was really confused. She didn't even understand at the time what Laura meant. Like, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. So Allison remembers Laura saying this another time, like that Bud was responsible for what happened to Lonnie. But this time, Laura said it in front of Bud. So he literally picks her up, sets her outside the front door, and told her to never come back. And with that, Allison never saw her again. Oh. I mean, I'm sure that Bud was awful to this lady, but she also probably shouldn't be telling the eight-year-old all about it. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And then what's sad is, like, I really think throughout their childhood, like, they lost all contact with their mom's family because their dad wouldn't let them see, which has to be so sad for their mom's family. Like, Ray and Maxine, her parents, and then Glennie, her sister, like, within a few years, they lost both of their daughters. Glennie lost both of her sisters. Oh, yep. Because the 12-year-old dies of the appendicitis. A few years later, Lonnie's disappears and then Lonnie's kids 
are gone. And I guess Glennie tried to get in contact with them throughout their whole childhood, but no one ever, you know, got the letters to her, like to the kids and never let the kids go visit. So Allison doesn't reconnect with her aunt Glennie until she's like an adult. Oh my gosh. Anyway, after this whole thing with Laura, Bud's girlfriend, who he just set out the door and told to leave, and then Allison never saw her again. After he sets her outside the door, Bud then goes into his room. He grabs a newspaper and he shows Allison a picture of Florida. He says that this is where her mother ran off to and that women always run away because women are no good. Allison wondered to herself if her father also hated her because she was a little girl who would become a woman. So he had like this hate for women that became very clear to Allison growing up. Oh. So that fall, the kids attended Edinburgh Elementary, Allison in second grade and Aaron in kindergarten. Allison adored her teacher, Mrs. Janet Bischoff. She loved that this woman was kind, patient, and understanding because at home, this wasn't what Allison experienced. Bud would spank the kids, smack them upside their head, throw things at them, or simply just leave them. They were verbally abused and made to feel like a huge burden to their father. And that Christmas, Bud told the kids that they wouldn't be getting anything for Christmas because he had no money. So Allison, at only eight, she assures him like, it's okay, dad, because Santa is going to bring us our gifts. So we don't need anything from you. But then Bud goes on and on about how bad the kids were. So actually, Santa wasn't bringing them anything either. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so sad. So Allison ends up going to school. She confides in her teacher that they are not getting anything for Christmas because their dad didn't have enough money. And soon after this, Allison's teacher and principal surprise them at their home with garbage bags filled to the brim with gifts. So, like, they did a little secret Santa thing for them. Yeah. And provided them Christmas. Now, soon after this, Bud brought home a new girlfriend named Marie. She was also hearing impaired. And Allison and Aaron went on to have this very hard childhood. Allison was actually assaulted by an adult neighbor in their complex. His name was Dennis. He was this friendly man who all the kids loved. And one day he told Allison that he was going to show her what a princess kiss was. She was eight and this adult man French kisses her while rubbing her leg under her dress. He told her not to tell anyone. But shortly after, they visited her Aunt Laura And Allison was innocently excited to tell her aunt about this princess kiss. Like, she saw nothing wrong with it. She's eight. She, he had, like, told her this was, like, exciting. It was special. So she was like, hey, guess what? Like, I got this kiss. And Laura had the proper reaction. (laughs) She's like, this is not okay. This is abuse. So Laura talks to Bud and he takes Allison to the Edinburgh police station where she reported the incident to Officer Paul Haggerty. Dennis, of course, denies the allegations and continues living in the apartment complex. Dennis looks at her with a lot of resentment every time he passed. And Allison actually felt guilty at that young age that she told the secret and caused all of this mess. 
you know, she was just too little to realize that she did the right thing and she was preyed upon by a very sick man. Yeah. So soon after all of this came to a head, Dennis actually poured sugar into Bud's gas tank and this ruined his truck. So they were back at the Edinburgh Police Department talking with Officer Haggerty. And I guess it was only alleged that Dennis did this because the police never could determine that it was him. But remember, Dennis was also close with all the kids in the apartment complex. And he told the kids they should not play with Allison because she was a liar. So with that, they all turned against her. And because of all of this, they make a move about 30 minutes away to an apartment in Erie, Pennsylvania. But soon after that, someone breaks into Bud's truck. So they move again, halfway through Allison's third grade year. By nine years old, Allison had gone to five different schools. So she's moving all the time. And so Allison's mom's missing, but nobody's been charged with it. And Bud has custody. Yes. Okay. So Lonnie went missing. And it's Bud been has how many years? his and Lonnie's kids. Now she's nine. She was five at the time. So, so by right now, it's been four years. Okay. Yeah. So Allison and Aaron, just pretty much in those four years since their mom had died, they, their lives were totally just like yeah uprooted like she's gone to five different schools but keep in mind that's since she was five years old so in the last four years five different schools and I can't imagine I mean this might sound mean but her dad being a very good dad no and he's not obviously because <laughs> she says as much that he was like really neglectful and CPS has been involved multiple times so okay Allison, remember, I don't know if I, maybe I didn't say that already. Maybe um, I just know that because it's coming. I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember if that was I don't already in the case. It. <laughs> anyway, so Allison remembers her childhood filled with drama, anger, and neglect. Allison clung to the teachers that were the good ones, like Miss Bridget Watson. She loved this teacher so much that she wrote a letter to her about her father, telling her they would make a great couple and that her and her brother were really well behaved. Allison longed for a loving mother, and she really thought Miss Bridget would take her up on this offer. She was devastated to have a sit-down conversation with her teacher that they needed to maintain a student-teacher relationship. And her teacher explains she's already seeing someone. She's not going to be able to date Allison's dad. So Allison was crushed and embarrassed about the note she wrote. And when Allison is given a Cabbage Patch doll for Christmas that year from her Aunt Laura, she names it Janet Bridget. So this is after two teachers, the one who gave them Christmas years ago and then the one she loved so much that she wanted her to marry her dad. So you can kind of tell, I know, she just like I think is really longing for like that motherly figure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So soon the family moves again. The sixth move in seven years. They were kicked out for not paying rent and they moved to Waterford, Pennsylvania. Now, remember Bud had a German shepherd, and this was the one who could alert him when the doorbell or the telephone rang. Well, this dog had been with Bud for at least 10 years. Alan had, not Alan, 
Allison had known him for her whole life, and the dog's name was Terry. The dog was getting older. A German Shepherd's lifespan is only about 9 to 13 years, and you know, he's had her for at least 10 years. So she was getting old. She was developing something like eczema, but Bud refused to pay the vet bill to have her treated. And just before this move, after they're getting kicked out for not paying their rent, Bud tells the kids to hop in the car. They're going to go and see the house that they're moving into. And Terry was coming along for the ride. Allison remembers her dad being super nice this day, which was not the usual for him. They got gas and Bud bought the kids each a piece of candy and now they made their way for the house they were supposedly going to see and like move into. So they drove for a super long time until they were mostly in fields with a random farmhouse here and there and at one point Bud is like all right I'm gonna stop and let Terry go to the bathroom. So Bud stops he lets Terry out of the vehicle And then he gets back in the car without the dog and drives away, leaving Terry behind. Allison is screaming that they forgot their dog. She's yelling for her dad to stop the truck. And she looks out the rear window and watches as Terry runs after the truck until he disappears out of her sight. She says both her and Aaron were crying and screaming because this was their dog. Like they loved Terry. They were freaking out, so Bud finally pulls over and he tells them that the new house doesn't allow dogs, so Terry has to live on a farm. Bud left it at that, and Allison basically just hoped that Terry would be okay out there. And I guess it was a very traumatizing experience for both of the children to watch their childhood dog just be abandoned. Oh, that's sad. He shouldn't have done it in front of them. I mean, like, he shouldn't have done it at all, but definitely not in front of them. (laughs) Well, yeah. And then to just leave him. You don't just go drop a dog off in the road. It's like, if he's really going to a farm, drop him off at the farm. I know. Like, he's just hoping, like, that the dog makes it to a farm. No, just drops him off on the side of the road and drives away, which is kind of sad for the dog because I think he's been with them for 10 years. He's like chasing after them. Oh, I know. Poor dog. I actually feel bad. Yeah, that's not cool. I actually felt sad for this dog. Aw. (laughs) (laughs) After they do this, they end up moving into an old farmhouse on Willertown Road in Waterford, Pennsylvania. There was a barn on this property and there were a few rooms in this barn, one of which Bud demanded the kids never go into. This room had a lock on it. Aaron and Allison were kids, so they kept being drawn to the unknown inside of that room. They tried and tried with no luck to bust inside, and when Bud discovered that the kids had attempted to get inside that room, he flipped out. He told him that that room was filled with their mom's stuff just in case she ever came home. He went on to basically say, screw it, she's never coming home, and we're not actually keeping her stuff anymore. So he piles all the boxes from that room into a field next to the barn and he sets it all on fire in front of his kids. Like everything that was ever their mom's was now gone. Oh my word. Yeah. So like all her jewelry, all her pictures, everything. Allison said she like never had anything of her mom's from there Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. So... 
Also, remember, Bud said that he left the dog Terry behind because they couldn't have a dog at this new house. Well, after this fire incident, he gets the kids a new dog named Candy. It's a toy poodle. And Allison was kind of pissed. She's like, we don't even need a new dog. We should have kept the one we had. We had a dog. But Bud claimed that he needed a poodle to train as his new hearing impaired dog. He also trained this dog to bite the kids if they got too close to him. Like in the mornings when they would try to wake their dad up, the dog would bite them. Oh, (laughs) smart dogs (laughs) are smart dogs. Smart dog, not great dad. No. So clearly Allison and Aaron went through the years just having a tough childhood. Bud was mean, he was abusive, and he was neglectful. They were home alone a lot together. So at one point, Allison had to get to school before Aaron. At She ends up, you know, getting old enough that she's going to middle school. I think at this time she was going to middle school in like fifth grade. Like they had like a very young starting middle school. And then Aaron was still in elementary school. So she had to go to school before him. So this little boy who was only in second grade at the time had to get himself out the door to school. And one morning on a cold day, Aaron had just thrown his coat on real quick to take the dog out before school, but he ended up running late and just ran to the bus after putting the dog inside. And what Aaron forgot, because he's like seven or eight, was that he threw his coat on, but he had no shirt underneath. So when he showed up to school... He has no shirt on. Oh, my gosh. Like when he takes off his coat. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's a second grader getting themselves ready into the bus. Oh, wow. So this was alarming, obviously. And it prompted the school to call Child Protective Services. A caseworker then comes to the children's schools and talk with each of them individually. Still, after this call, Bud continued to leave the children home alone very often. And one day the caseworkers stop by for a random check. Allison tries to cover for her dad, but after about an hour, the caseworkers tell the kids that they would need to be taken to a safe home within the foster care system. Ultimately, Allison and Aaron were assigned to go back and live with their Aunt Laura again. This is Bud's sister, who they have lived with before. And this meant that they had to move again. Allison was devastated because she was supposed to perform in the upcoming talent show with her friends. But thankfully, the guidance counselor at Allison's middle school, named Mrs. Dinsmore, asked if arrangements could be made for Allison to stay with her family till after the talent show. And CPS did grant this, so Allison was able to stay, perform, and then move to her aunt's house. (laughs) Aw. Yeah, like this guidance counselor just knew it meant a lot to her to have they had to like audition for the talent show okay and they made it and she was so excited that they made it and so she wanted her to be able to do it yeah and mrs dinsmore comes back around so during the year they were with their aunt laura bud would come visit them here and there he would spoil them treat them right and then go on his merry way So after about a year, he was allowed to bring the kids home. He told them that they were coming back to live with him. 
and they were excited. They felt a little out of place at their aunt's home. They could feel that they were a burden, or at least that's what they felt like. Plus, their dad had only spoiled them over the last year. So they kind of forgot about being home all the time alone and how bad it was with him. But again, now they're moving for the eighth time. And Allison is just going into sixth grade. Wow. This time they move. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Eight times from the time you're five to the time you're in sixth grade. I mean, you have no stability at all. Yeah. None. Like switching friends all the time just all over the place yeah I it'd be hard remember when I was little we actually moved a lot you did yeah like well my parents got divorced Uh uh-huh and then my mom moved at least three times that I can remember and my dad moved uh, probably more than that dang was it hard yeah, I mean, they were all pretty good because, like, at least in elementary school, they moved, but we, like, stayed in the same school. Oh, yeah. But, like, I never had, like, really any close, like, neighborhood friends. Right, because you were, like, moving all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Even in junior high, I, like, moved quite a bit, but still stayed, like, within my same school. Yeah. It would be hard. I get nervous about like whenever we move houses and it's like, do I move Charlie's schools? Do I keep her in the same school? Like, I don't want her to leave all her friends. It's no, like I sad know. to I mean, think we did about. That to you guys. I know, but only once, Yeah, you know, and it ended up being fine. I was in sixth grade, so I do remember yeah. I was super sad. Yeah. But then it worked out, you know, and you know, for like. I don't think it would work good for anyone to be moving eight times in a few years. No, that's excessive. So, yeah, this was a lot for Allison and Aaron. And this time they moved into an upstairs apartment in Erie, Pennsylvania, and Allison would attend a new school, Gridley Middle School. The honeymoon phase, being back with their dad, did not last long. Soon he was leaving them home alone all the time, and he was mean again. Allison also had to walk three blocks to school, and the first day she did it, she was in a panic. She reached the school and walked inside. Tears were streaming down her face, and she had a panic attack. So after talking with her school counselor, children's services were involved yet again. Oh my gosh. Was was he still married? No, he never remarried. He's just had like a couple girlfriends. Oh, okay. But I think those are on and off. And this time they have a caseworker named Glenn who Allison hated because he would ask questions to the kids and then turn around and tell Bud what the kids were saying. So Allison wrote in her book that once he this Glenn guy literally says to Bud, quote, Allison told me that you slapped her in the back of the head and she fell over. And she says in her book, like, what a freaking idiot. (laughs) Yeah, what a way to get the parent angry. Yeah, like, and it was often like, Allison told me that you aren't home, and Allison told me this, and she was like, what the heck, I'm not going to tell you anything. You can't tell him. Yeah, why would she? Because she probably got in trouble. Exactly, and then on top of this, Glenn doesn't know sign language, so the person who's interpreting is Allison. So Glenn is saying it, 
to Bud and Allison is the one having to sign it. Allison told me this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'd just be like, uh. <laughs> yeah, she said she would like leave. She would have left things out except her dad could also read lips. So like oh. he kind of, you know, did both. And so she was too scared to leave anything out. Yeah. And so she's literally in this position where she's having to tell her dad that she told the caseworker these things. So when this would happen, her heart pounded. She knew that Bud would be pissed that she was telling the caseworker these things. And one time, Allison even follows Glenn as he was leaving. And she's begging him not to go because her father would kill her once he left. But Glenn told her she should just stay in her room for a little while and she will be fine. So Glenn, he's he's not a great caseworker. Sorry, Glenn. Not doing great at your job. She was literally only 10 years old at this time. So Allison, she was right. Bud was pissed and he came to her room screaming about her being a liar. And this was the regular though. Bud was always yelling at them, always furious. One time, Bud was screaming at Aaron before hitting him with a can opener that cut the temple of his head. Aaron fell to the floor crying, and Bud came closer, telling him he was being a baby and he needs to get up. And Allison doesn't know how she did it, but she found the courage to stand up to her dad, telling him that he will go to jail if he touches Aaron again. So Bud walks away. And clearly, the kids are not in a safe environment. They've lost their mom. They're not being taken care of by their dad. And at this point, CPS isn't really helping them either. Yeah. So, Allison, she ended up making a friend named Kathy Sedwick. And at one point, Kathy's mother let Allison stay at her house. She told Allison that she was always welcome because she knew Allison was not in a good living situation. And Bud had basically just let Allison go. go. He didn't care until Glenn came for a random CPS check and was told that Allison ran away. Glenn came with a police officer to the Sedwick's home and was told that Allison was being taken into foster care. She was moved to a group home where the children were forced to call the woman taking care of them mom, which was really hard for Allison as she hadn't called anyone mom since her own mother disappeared. Thankfully, it wasn't too long before her Aunt Laura came to pick her up. This is the place that Allison preferred by this point. She would rather feel like a bit of a burden than live under her father's abusive thumb or in a foster care system. One side note of this foster care, like this group home, Allison had a stomachache one of the nights she was there and she went downstairs to let the mom know like my stomach's really upset and she found this her foster mom having a party with a bunch of women and some male strippers in the living room oh my gosh (laughs) she was like said that the foster lady was really mean and she's like I could have gotten her in trouble but like they wouldn't have really liked that she had male strippers over (laughs) yeah I was like, my goodness You would think you would get someone to be tending. Yeah, but it's like a group home. So I think there were a ton of kids. She's just doing her thing down there. And she like got really mad at Allison for coming down. She's like, go back to your room. And she's like, well, my stomach hurts. I like, I don't know what to do. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So foster care wasn't great. So she's like, okay, I'm ready to go to my aunt's house. And with that, she was enrolled in sixth grade at Westlake Middle School. 
Aaron stayed with Bud. Allison stayed here for a couple years until the summer before eighth grade, so sixth grade to eighth grade. Although her Aunt Laura had told her she could stay at her home until she graduated, it turns out Bud was coming to pick her up the summer before her eighth grade year. One day he was just Aunt at Laura's home and they tell her that she was moving home with her dad. Allison's heart drops. She was sick to her stomach knowing she had to move yet again because over these last couple years, that's the longest she had been in one place. So she had made friends and she was enjoying her life and she was glad to be away from her dad. Oh, yeah. So, but he he had moved just 25 minutes away from her aunt's house into another upstairs apartment, except it was a one bedroom, one bathroom apartment. Allison was 14 now and Aaron was 11. So Allison, Aaron, and Bud are sharing a room. Okay. Like a one bedroom, one bathroom. And she's like, we were way too old to be sharing a room by that point. Yeah. So again, Allison moves schools, but she was going back to the school that she attended in fifth grade. So it turns out that her math teacher was Mrs. Dinsmore. It, the same person who was her old middle school counselor, the one who allowed her to stay at her home for the talent show. This teacher, she was now part-time math teacher and part-time guidance counselor. And on Friday, October 14th, 1988, it was clear that Mrs. Dinsmore could sense that Allison's home life was not good. So she calls her into her office while working as the guidance counselor and she gives her a piece of paper and it has Mrs. Dinsmore's phone number on it. She tells Allison that if she ever needed anything day or night, she could call her. Little did Mrs. Dinsmore know how quickly Allison would need to use this resource. And with that, we're like super far into this, like an hour and 20. So that is where we'll end for part one. Thanks for listening. I research, write, host, and edit this show. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Make sure to find us on Instagram at True Crime X Pod. That's True Crime E X P O D, and on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast. Today, I just want you to make an effort to go and visit Allison's page dedicated to her mom and finding her justice. This is on Facebook at Justice for Lonine. Allison runs this page. She posts updates and you can help be an advocate for Lonnie in her fight for justice.